trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. All right, I have a confession to make. My voice is hanging on by a thread. Now, personally, I blame the weather. So, yeah, I guess you could say I'm in on the whole climate change thing. But the climate changing back and forth between spring to winter to almost spring to back to full winter to nearly spring again. I don't know why, but when this happens, uh, that seems to be the time that I always get some kind of a massive cold, which uh, without fail goes directly to my voice, goes right to my throat. And, and it usually hangs on. So, yeah, I'm, I'm doing my best. I'm not, uh, I'm not on my A game today, but, uh, but the, the spirit is willing, even if, if the flesh is a little bit uh, hacky. <laughs> Nonetheless, thank you so much for tuning in. I, I got to tell you, my, my sense of injustice is uh, it's really riding high today. And there are a couple of different reasons why. Um, I, I've been sitting back and watching with some interest um, St. Luke's healthcare system and and various players in the state of Idaho, uh, judges and so forth, going after Ammon Bundy on a civil suit. And and I follow Ammon through his People's Rights organization. Got an email from him the other day, and, and I've I've talked about this briefly on the show before. Um, basically, St. Luke's, which has very very deep pockets, handed a blank check to its favored law firm and told him, "Get this man." And, and I don't know if they use the word destroy, but what they're trying to do is destroy him through lawfare, which is multiple filings over and over. They're just burying him in legal paperwork, which uh, he has to respond to and is, is costing him, you know, it, it takes time. It takes hundreds of thousands of dollars. I think they started out with about a six-figure settlement that they were looking for. Uh, this all stems back to, to when Ammon organized protesters over the seizing of baby Diego just a little over a year ago. And long story short, authorities took a healthy young infant away from his mother who was breastfeeding him and were prepared to drop him into a uh, a foster home over his parents missing a doctor's appointment. And uh, because Ammon is close personal friends with Diego's family, uh, or with uh, the baby's family, baby Cyrus, I should say, it's it's not baby Diego, it's baby Cyrus, um, his, his grandfather, Diego, is a very good friend of Ammon's. Anyway, they organized a protest. Hundreds of people showed up outside of St. Luke's in, uh, in Ada County, and uh, they, they pretty much uh, demanded you give this kid back, which the hospital did after a couple of days. And, and if, if you haven't seen the video of, of, of how the police went about taking this child from his mother, it's, it's, just, it's an exercise in just heartless deception and manipulation and coercion. It's its really ugly stuff. And of course, the Child Protective Services uh, system swings into play. The hospital is standing behind it. Well, they were causing damage. You know, we, we had to shut down the emergency room. We had to turn away ambulances because of these protesters. I rather don't believe that, but, uh, you know, they're trying to play the victim. Bottom line is, St. Luke's sicked their pit bull team of lawyers on Ammon and on his friend Diego. And uh, they have been doing everything in their power. What started as a six-figure settlement now is up to like $7.5 million. And, and what they really want 
in addition to destroying him and taking everything away from him, is they want to see him in jail. And, of course, this is a civil case now. Um, Ammon settled on the criminal case, which was trespass. Um, he, he settled with them, but uh, they want to see him destroyed. And so they have just sent so much legal paperwork his way that, uh, you know, they're doing everything they can to take everything that he has. And uh, the other day, I guess this was about a week ago, Ammon was at home. Sheriff's deputies showed up to serve more more court papers. And you got to understand, they've been, these have been coming through the U.S. Postal Service. They've been coming through FedEx. They've been delivered every possible way. Well, this time, these sheriff's deputies showed up. And apparently, um, in, in Gem County, the, the sheriff's deputies didn't encounter Ammon. They encountered one of his kids who says, Dad's not here. So they went snooping around on his property. And eventually, they snooped in his shop. That's where Ammon was working. And he basically got in their faces and told them, you know, you are trespassed from my property. He contacted the sheriff, told them, I want these people trespassed. And, and the sheriff has agreed. If, if, you are, if you're trespassed from someone's private property, you know, that has to be recognized. That includes process servers as well. They have to find another way to, to get those papers to him. Well, uh, the the press here in Idaho, and I'm talking the mainstream press, the Boise Statesman and others, right now their bloodlust is so high, and and there was there there are people who were saying, well, Ammon's threatening the the judicial system, he's making a mockery of our judicial system. They're so blinded by their hatred of this man and his willingness to stand up against official systemic injustice. They want to produce some kind of confrontation. And to his credit, the sheriff in Jim County wrote a letter and said, look, this is, uh, this is pushing him to the edge. He says, I've had a conversation with, with Mr. Bundy, who has told me he is at the breaking point. And he says, based on his voice when I was talking to him, I believe that's so. So you can imagine how the press likes to spin this. Well, he's threatening us. He's, uh, he's threatening. And, and Ammon has made several uh, references saying, look, God will deliver me. He, he's, he's seen it before. And, and it's not something he says lightly. Ammon was up against the, the full might of the federal government, not once, but twice, once in Oregon, once again in Nevada. Both times he prevailed. Both times he credits God Almighty and his faith in God with delivering him from people who were out to destroy him and his family. Now, I happen to have a front row seat especially for the Nevada trial, literally front row seat there in the courtroom. He's not wrong. But of course, like, like all tyrants, you know, these tyrants play the, oh, he's threatening us. He's, tr- he's saying he's going to destroy us. You know, it's, it's, it's as pathetic as it is overblown. But the sheriff in so many words said, look, you are terrorizing this man. And because it's a civil matter, I don't think it's worth seeing somebody get hurt. Which some have spun into, well, the sheriff has been intimidated by Ammon into not doing his job. And, and they, they just they make it out like Ammon is just a bomb waiting to go off. At no point do they have the self-awareness or, or the, the kind of moral compass that can enable, enable them to see that uh, what they are doing is, in, in effect, kicking a dog, hoping it will bite so that they can turn around and play victim. And, and it gets somebody else to shoot the dog, which is really what they want. I'm sorry, I, I know I, I probably sound frustrated, and, and, and I get it. There are people who just, you know, no, Ammon's not, uh, not, not my cup of tea. I get that. 
if I didn't know the man personally, if everything I knew about him was simply what I had heard from various media sources, I would probably have a very unfavorable impression as well. But I do have the advantage of having known him for some time, having been there at Bundy Ranch, having seen the kind of individual that he is and and what he is willing to suffer, not just for himself, but for other people who are on the receiving end of injustice. So if, if this makes you, if this discounts me in your eyes, I'll take that risk. But I'm, I, I will say this. He's one of the best people that I know. He is the real deal of someone who is willing to stand up for what's right. Threatening him with arrest does not intimidate him. He's been through it many times. He sat in prison for the better part of two years waiting for his trial there in Nevada and in Oregon. It's it's. It's the kind of thing that not very many people would be willing to go through or able to go through without, uh, you know, just surrendering to despair. So when I see, you know, the, the thoughtless crowd, oh man, people love a good public stoning. But the hatred and the, the bloodlust that is being directed toward him right now, look, I'm just going to come right out and call it what it is. It is evil. It's demonic. And I guess it's a pretty good indicator of the kind of times in which we live. There is, there is, I think, maybe a, a kind of demonic possession that has taken hold in this land. And if you are someone who is willing to stand up against the machine, and sometimes it's those crony corporate interests intertwined with, with state interests, or sometimes it's a horribly corrupted justice system being manipulated, you know, the, then uh, you're going to be made a target. And apparently yesterday, a judge there in, in, in the state's capital in Ada County um, issued a civil arrest warrant to bring Ammon into court. Now, I don't know what all that means. All I know is I'm praying for this guy's safety. I'm praying for Ammon's sanity. You know, his critics, you know, while they're eagerly piling on and, yeah, this is great, this is great. You know, they're popping popcorn and anticipating that finally he's going to get his. And I can't really think of a nice way to say this, but uh, none of them realized they would have to stand on their dear mama's shoulders just to shake Ammon's hand because they don't have the backbone, they don't have the conviction, they don't have the principles to stand for anything. The only thing they can do is tear down. So I had to get that off my chest. Yes, my sense of injustice is a bit riled, and that's one of the reasons why, but I'm also inviting you, if you, uh, if you are so inclined... Keep Ammon Bundy in your prayers. I think he could really use that uh, support and could use that faith. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. If you're still with me, I realize this may have been, you know, I, I may have waved off most of the audience with with uh, my first segment, but I'm willing to take that chance. I'm speaking from the heart. And uh, since my sense of, uh, of uh, injustice is slightly engaged, there's another subject I'd like to swerve into for a few minutes. I know there were a lot of mistakes made over the past three years. And uh, maybe I should put that in air quotes, mistakes. Some were mistakes like, well, we, uh, we made a call and it was wrong, but you hear very few people say that. So um, at some point, you know, it stops being a mistake and just becomes willful blindness. One of the most despicable mistakes was the segregation of society into essential and non-essential 
designations. By the way, a tip of the hat to uh, Ruben for sending me this article from the Brownstone Institute. This is by Jeffrey Tucker, what they meant by essential and non-essential. He says, in all my thinking about the lockdown years, I've only had time now to think carefully about this strange distinction between essential and non-essential. What did it mean in practice and where did it come from? The edict to divide the workforce came from a previously unknown agency called the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. The edict came down March 18, 2020, two days following the initial lockdown orders from Washington. He says management and workers all over the country had to dig through regulations that came out of the blue to find out if they could go to work. The terms essential and non-essential were not used in the way that one might initially intuit. It sharply demarcated the whole of the commercial world into ways that are inorganic to all of human experience. In the background was a very long history and cultural habit of using terms to identify professions and their interaction with difficult subjects like class. In the Middle Ages, we had lords, serfs, merchants, monks, and thieves. As capitalism dawned, these strict demarcations melted away and people got access to money despite accidents of birth. Today we speak of white-collar, meaning dressed up for a professional setting, even if literal white-collars are not common. We speak of the working classes, an odd term that implies others are not working because they're members of the leisure class. Now this is clearly a holdover from the 19th century habits of the aristocracy. In the 20th century, we invented the term middle class to refer to everyone who is not actually poor. Jeffrey Tucker says the Department of Labor has traditionally deferred to common usage and speaks of professional services, information services, retail, and hospitality, while the tax authorities offer hundreds of professions into which you're supposed to fit yourself. The deployment of the terms essential and non-essential, however, has no precedent in our language. Isn't that something? He says this is because of a view stemming from the democratic ethos and real-world commercial experience that everyone and everything is essential to everything else. Now, he says, when I worked as part of a department store cleaning crew, I became profoundly aware of this. My job was not only to clean restrooms, certainly essential, but also to pick tiny pins and needles from the carpets in the changing rooms. Missing one could end in terrible injury for customers. My job was as essential as the accountants or salespeople. So what exactly did the government in March 2020 mean by non-essential? It meant that things like haircutters, makeup stylists, nail salons, gyms, bars, restaurants, small shops, bowling alleys, movie theaters, and churches. These are all activities that some bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. decided we could do without. After months of no haircuts, however, things started to get desperate as people cut their own hair and called someone to sneak over to the house. In fact, he says, I had a friend who heard through the grapevine that there was a warehouse in New Jersey that had a secret knock for the back door to a barber. He tried it, and he worked. Not one word was spoken. The haircut took seven minutes, and he paid in cash, which is all the person would accept. He came and went and told no one. I don't know why, but that actually kind of sounds cool to me. <laughs> I love it. What is, this is what it meant to be a non-essential or to be non-essential, a person or a service that the society could do without in a pinch. The lockdown order of March 16th, 2020, indoor and outdoor venues where people congregate should be closed, applied to them, but it did not apply to everything and everyone. What was essential? Well, this is where matters got very complicated. Did one want to be essential? Maybe, but it depends on the profession. 
Truck drivers were essential. Nurses and doctors were essential. People who keep the lights on, the water running, and the buildings in good repair are essential. These are not laptoppers and Zoomers. They actually had to be there. Those professions include what are considered working-class jobs, but not all of them. Bartenders and cooks and waiters were not essential. But also here was also included here was government, of course. Oh, can't do without that. Additionally, this included media, which turned out to be hugely important in the pandemic period. Education was essential, even if it could be conducted online. Finance was essential because, you know, people have to make money in stock markets and banking. All in all, the category of essential excluded the lowest ranks of the social pecking order, garbage collectors and meat processors, and also the highest ranks of society from media professionals to permanent bureaucrats. Jeffrey Tucker says that was an odd pairing, a complete bifurcation between the highest and the lowest. It was the served and the servers, the serfs and the lords, the ruling class and those who would deliver food to their doorsteps. So when the New York Times says we should go medieval on the virus, they meant it. That's exactly what happened. This even applied to surgery and medical services. Elective surgeries, meaning anything on a schedule, including diagnostic checkups, were forbidden while emergency surgeries were permitted. Why are there no real investigations into how this came to be? Jeffrey Tucker says, think of totalitarian societies like in the Hunger Games, with the District 1 and everyone else. Or perhaps the old Soviet Union, in which party elites dined in luxury and everyone else stood in breadlines. Or perhaps a scene from Oliver in which the owners of the orphanage got fat while the kids in the workhouse lived on gruel until they could escape to live in the underground economy. It appears that the pandemic planners think of society in the same way. When they had the chance to decide what was essential and non-essential, they chose a society massively segregated between the rulers and those who make their lives possible, while everyone else was dispensable. And he says this was not an accident. This is how they see the world and perhaps how they want it to function in the future. And this is not conspiracy theory. This really happened. They did it to us only three years ago, and that should tell us something. Jeffrey Tucker says it's contrary to every democratic principle and flies in the face of everything we call civilization, but they did it anyway. And this reality gives us a peek into the mindset that's deeply troubling and should truly alarm us. He says, as far as I know, none of the authors of this policy have been dragged before Congress to testify. They have never given testimony in court. A search of the New York Times turns up no news that this tiny agency, only created in 2018, blew apart the whole of the organic class markers that have charted our progress for the last 1,000 years. It was a shocking and brutal action, yet merits no comment at all from the ruling regime in government, media, and otherwise. So now that we know for sure who and what our rulers consider essential and non-essential, what are we going to do about it? Should someone be called to account for this? Or will we continue to allow our overlords to gradually make the reality of life under lockdowns our permanent condition? Well, he comes right out and says it. I don't disagree with, it, with his analysis on this. Look, I, as far as I know... The apparatus, the, the structure is still in place that the next time there's a big scare, whether it's, you know, some type of avian flu or something else, it could be implemented again. So that kind of puts the responsibility uh, back on you and me. And that can be a little bit awkward. 
I don't know about you. I can't, I can't speak for, for you or what, uh, you know, what your threshold of comfort is. But I know that uh, I have drawn a hard line in the sand. I've described it before. It started out as a line in the sand. It's a trench now. I will not participate in the lie. I won't pretend that I'm not essential. I'm not going to put on the mask. Actually, I'll take it back. I would put on a mask if I felt like I had symptoms and absolutely had to be somewhere. But if I really was sick, I wouldn't be going out in public and risking sharing it with others. I already know masks don't prevent the transmission of viruses. But I guess what I'm saying is I won't play along with everybody's favorite phobia, which means I'm going to encounter some friction. Are you ready to encounter some friction in your life to stand up for what you believe in? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to the great sponsors who make this program possible. They include MonticelloCollege.org. Also, lifesavingfood.com, Borelli.com, great place to go, a great website if you're into the shooting sports. Also, TMCP Nation, the modern conservative podcast nation. That's my friend John Harvey's amazing store in which he he sells some really uh, remarkable uh, freedom-oriented merchandise, hats, T-shirts, and the like. And, uh, yeah, he's got some special bonuses for my listeners. If you decide to go there and make a purchase, please use the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, and if you spend 100 bucks, he'll throw a really nice uh, bonus your way at checkout. So, I love the writing of J.B. Shirk. This guy writes for American Thinker, at least that's where I seem to find his articles more often than not. And one thing that I have become very uh, practiced at, at picking up on <clears throat> and noticing is the contempt that the ruling class feels for the rest of us. Sometimes it comes directly from their own mouths and sometimes it just comes through their their preferred narrative managers in the media. But it's pretty clear. The ruling class feels absolute contempt for the rest of us and especially contempt for those of us who refuse to just bend the knee and, and quietly submit to whatever we're being told to do. Well, J.B. Shirk in his latest essay lets us in on a little secret that the elite would uh, rather that we didn't know. That is, they fear us. Shirk says, long before the Department of Homeland Security attempted to justify the formal recognition of a disinformation czar to monitor American speech or news, long before that news broke that the State Department had been using a foreign organization called the Global Disinformation Index to censor conservative voices here at home, it was clear that the war for free speech had begun. For years, conservative websites had struggled to survive financially as shadow bans and stealth blacklisting eliminated advertising revenues and throttled user engagement. Online trolls infiltrated comment sections, posting inflammatory content that could be used as false flag justifications to legally threaten or otherwise punish conservative forums. Conservative content creators and their readers strenuously objected to the organized censorship war being waged against them, but few politicians, reporters, or pundits cared. But he says now the cat is out of the bag, and neither the government agencies nor their corporate co-conspirators are hiding their embrace of viewpoint discrimination. Case in point, the FBI continues to flag more language, including words as innocuous as red pill, based, and chad as extremist rhetoric. 
Google blocked Right Side Broadcasting Network from covering President Trump's Democrat-engineered Manhattan arraignment on on YouTube, claiming that censorship was necessary to combat elections misinformation. A revolving door now exists to fill social media companies with employees from the ranks of the FBI, CIA, and Homeland Security. By the way, he has links to each one of these, so this is not just stuff he's pulling out of thin air. Meanwhile, Klaus Schwab's World Economic Forum has announced hiring of millions of information warriors, that's their word, tasked with the mission to seize control of the Internet and serve as digital first responders combating misinformation. Like how they use those warlike terms to describe what they're doing? Already in France, one woman faces a $13,000 fine for calling King Macron filth on Facebook. Didn't a guy just go to prison for posting Hillary Clinton memes here in the U.S.? I believe that uh, that just happened. J.B. Shirk says, As the American Uniparty's collaboration with Schwab's Marxist globalists continues to grow, expect these serious violations of the First Amendment's protections for free speech to proliferate. After all, in a remarkable display of political and bureaucratic goose-stepping, the District of Corruption's occupying workforce has been nearly unanimous in its enthusiastic support for and adoration of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and his new Western democracy. No matter how many jackboots Zelensky sends to shut down churches, crush opposing political parties, or silence dissenting citizens, the bombastic Washington despots who endlessly chirp about Western values are the same ones proclaiming their full-throated support for the worst kinds of tyranny. Welcome to the new America where ruling class contempt for freedom is no longer disguised. Shirk says right now, state-aligned corporate news firms are breathlessly reporting about Pentagon leaks that might have come from a 21-year-old Massachusetts Air National Guardsman. While the revelations contained in those documents demonstrate that the Department of of Defense has perpetuated outright lies regarding Ukraine's likelihood of success against Russia, State-aligned propagandists posing as journalists have used the leaks not to hold government actors accountable, but rather to justify the expansion of government powers, almost gleefully supporting the Uniparty's calls for the urgent passage of the Restrict Act, legislation ostensibly drafted to combat China's TikTok, but in actuality a statutory vehicle designed to provide the federal government with broad authority to confront Internet danger. The American press, the American press, rather play along while the legislative and executive executive branches use this present crisis as an excuse to swing the sledgehammer down on Americans' free speech. As those with eyes to see and sufficient backbone to speak uncomfortable truths have noted, the Restrict Act is an online Patriot Act, not meant to protect, but rather to silence Americans. And so he says, make no bones about it, the federal government's number one worry is you. Now, Shirk says, as part of my routine while conducting research and taking notes, I pay attention not only to what kinds of information appear online, but also what kinds of information get quickly covered up. You can learn a great deal about what matters most to the powers that be by regularly returning to sources, chat forums, and search results, and scrutinizing how information has been marginalized or deleted. The steady encroachment of outright censorship has turned into a tell for discerning what facts or opinions government-aligned agents seek to hide. And by the way, there are some people out there who are just masterful at this. Some will call it weaponized autism, no offense to the autistic, but I'm grateful such people exist. 
And I think they're actually doing the rest of us a great service. Anyway, back to Shirk's article. He says, This distasteful scrubbing operation has been an unfortunate, re- unfortunate reality for many years, but it became obvious to a lot more people during the Orwellian overreach of COVID-1984. By now, people are generally aware that government-aligned tech companies censored accurate information regarding the virus's origins, its relative lethality, and available over-the-counter treatments. The government labeled as harmful disinformation accurate reports concerning everything from the efficacy of masks, social distancing, and mRNA vaccines to the harmful side effects and deaths those experimental vaccines caused. Going from COVID to the 2020 presidential election, those same censors scrubbed allegations of election fraud as misinformation. And after January 6th, such views were scrutinized as extremist examples of potential domestic terrorism. Well, this trend has not stopped. And more varied subject matters have turned into targets for censorship in the government's ever-growing yet amorphous efforts to protect Americans from threats of harm. He says it's all atrocious particularly revealing of the government's insidious determination to protect its absolute power over what may be considered true by controlling what speech Americans may see or hear is the regular disappearance of political memes and other humorous content from chat rooms and search results. In one example that I've kept an eye on, the following anonymous message never lasts long. They fear you. They fear you being awake. They fear you waking up others. They fear you being armed. They fear you speaking up. They fear you speaking out. They fear you standing up. They fear you resisting. They fear you rebelling. They fear you revolting. They fear you not complying. They fear you banding together. They fear you standing together. They fear you coordinating. They fear you learning you are the majority. They fear you realizing your power. They fear you using your power. They fear you. Now, this message shows up in online communities written in a way reminiscent of Red Dawn's teenage insurgents scrolling wolverines on graffitied walls in occupied America. Invariably, it quickly disappears. If the government and its big tech co-conspirators are responsible for the censorship, then their actions prove the truth of the message. They fear you so much that they are afraid for you to read that they do. Think about that fact. J.B. Shirk says it puts things in glaring perspective, does it not? Joe Biden threatens nuclear strikes on Americans who accurately understand the Second Amendment as a bulwark against government tyranny. The political uniparty and permanent deep state are obsessed with labeling political dissent as disinformation and publishing Americans for their beliefs. At the end of the day, though, all their huffing and puffing reveals one unassailable truth. They fear you. He has a quote here from Bertrand Russell in a book titled Why Men Fight says, men fear thought as they fear nothing else on earth. More than ruin, more than even death, thought is subversive and revolutionary, destructive and terrible. Thought is merciless to privilege, established institutions, and comfortable habits. Thought is anarchic and lawless, indifferent to authority, careless of the well-tried wisdom of the ages. Thought looks into the pit of hell and is not afraid. Thought is great and swift and free, the light of the world and the chief glory of man. J.B. Shirk says, why has the American government gone down this un-American path of censorship and political persecution? Because men fear thought. Because thought is revolutionary. Because thought is unafraid. Because thought is great and free. Your capacity to think and speak freely gives you more power than any government. So he says, use that power and have no fear. 
And remember, they are afraid. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we have made it to the final segment of today's show. That we, I mean my voice, not the mouse in my pocket. Nonetheless, thank you again for joining me today. If you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I always try to include links. Well, I actually, I do include links. That's the whole reason I do the show notes is so you have some follow-up. If you want to learn more about a particular subject or even a particular writer, I try to connect you so that you have more resources to better engage in wrong think, which increasingly is becoming a very necessary survival skill in these times. Two quick things I want to touch on here before I get to to my next article. Uh, One, were doctors and other healthcare providers pushing the COVID vaccine on their patients in return for monetary bonuses? This is something I actually want to ask my healthcare provider. I don't really have a a dedicated family doctor here at the moment, but but I want to know. Did, Did the vaccine companies or the insurance companies, did they offer some kind of an incentive I'm looking at, this is from Anthem Medical, which I guess provides Blue Cross and Blue Shield Medicaid for Kentucky. And sure enough, this is a COVID-19 vaccine provider incentive program that talks about how if you're a participating Kentucky primary care provider, then we would like to to invite you to be part of, of our hard work here and reward you for it with incentives for helping patients make the choice to become vaccinated. In fact, they say... Nothing influences people stronger than making a, than a strong recommendation from their healthcare provider. But if they do agree, and this, this is like for 2021, so they say the results will be calculated for two time periods. We'll make your first incentive payment September 1st of 2021, final incentive payment December 31st of 2021. And this is all tracked by the COVID-19 vaccine claim or Kentucky vaccine registry. But they say if your practice meets the below thresholds for vaccination with at least one dose by September 1st of 2021, you will receive the following incentive, initial incentive payment based on the following rates. So you get 30% of your members vaccinated. That's a $20 bonus per vaccinated member. And from there... 40% is a $45 bonus, 50% is a $70 bonus, 60% a $100 bonus, 75% of Anthem members vaccinated would mean a $125 bonus per vaccinated member. Now, I didn't go see my doctor during that time, so I can't say that, yeah, my doctor was pushing, you know, to get vaccinated. But I know a lot of people who did and said that it, it was very strongly recommended. I even know a few people, and this is primarily from my friends in Utah, who said that uh, when they asked their doctor, do you receive any kind of a payment when we do get vaccinated? In some cases, the doctor said yes. In many cases, the subject was changed with a rather uncomfortable uh, abruptness (laughs) because apparently that wasn't something Doc wanted to talk about. Look, I'm not suggesting this is a grand conspiracy and it was done everywhere and every place, but clearly it was a reality. Think about the perverse incentive that provides for doctors to push something on their patients. All I can say is if you, if you resisted the urge to take the vaccine, um, you're part of a very small percentage of the population, I think less than 30%. But you're probably pretty glad you did. Which, by the way, they're still pushing it. How's that for weird? 
Also, <clears throat> I've got a great article here from Annie Holmquist. Annie always has a take that's worth considering. And her latest essay is titled, Choosing Children Over More Than Just Guns. You hear this a lot right now, all the push for gun control. Who was it? The the expelled Tennessee lawmaker walked into the state house yesterday carrying a child's coffin. What a drama queen. But it's all about the gun control. Think of the children. You'll choose guns over children. Annie makes a very strong case that maybe some of the violence, not just gun violence, but the, the violence and the, the disintegration of our society has to do with the fact that uh, a lot of people have chosen other things besides children, career, material goods, fun, whatever it may be. Kind of makes me wonder if this isn't one of the reasons why abortion is such a flashpoint for so many people. Man, in, in, in so many cases, it seems like there are people just willing to lose their minds if they don't have the uh, ability to get an abortion on a whim. And it's, it's almost never in the case, well, this was a case of rape or incest or the mother is going to die if she has this child. No. It's people who don't control themselves sexually and get pregnant and, oh, I don't have time for this. I need to take care of it, which is a euphemistic way of saying I need to get an abortion. Nonetheless, that's an interesting article and very, very thought-provoking, again, from Annie Holmquist. Strongly recommend it. This is one that uh, Tom Woods wrote that he actually said this out as a, as a letter in the email I saw that Lou Rockwell picked it up and republished it. NPR just outed itself. Now, Tom Woods is always a good read, but this is especially good. He says, boy, was NPR unhappy when Elon Musk affixed the U.S. state-affiliated media label to them on Twitter, the same way other state-allied media outlets around the world are, are designated. How dare he? And yet, in the wake of a leaker disclosing information about Ukraine that embarrassed the U.S. regime, the NPR coverage has focused on demonizing the leaker himself rather than bothering to explore the issues raised by the information he released. You know, that's exactly how state-affiliated media outlets behave. In fact, he shares an exchange between Tucker Carlson and journalist Glenn Greenwald, which sums it up nicely. Glenn Greenwald says, I can't think of an incident, Tucker, that reveals more vividly the real function of our nation's largest media corporations than what just happened here. If you're a real journalist, somebody who's devoted to transparency, shining a light on the most powerful government actors when they lie to the American people and informing the public, you would be celebrating this person who stepped forward and risked his security to show his fellow citizens that the government was lying about this incredibly important war with a nuclear armed power, that we have no actual troops deployed on the ground in Ukraine. Or I'm sorry, that we have actual troops deployed on the ground in Ukraine. There's going to be no diplomatic resolution through at least 2023 that Zelensky is planning on using our weapons to strike deep into Russia, which we were told would never happen, risking escalation. Greenwald says he did the job of what journalists claim to do, which is to show the public the truth. If you work for intelligence agencies, you would be furious at this person. You would hate him because he revealed that you just lied. He exposed the truth about what you were doing. What's amazing is the New York Times, the Washington Post, all the people who were at the Pentagon briefing today think the way the CIA and the Pentagon think. They hate this person. It was the New York Times and the Washington Post that did the FBI's work and found the leaker and led the FBI to him. They're demanding that he be punished. They're demanding that the government clamp down and keep things more and more secret. What kind of journalist would ever do that? 
would see a leak and then expose and punish and then demand that government do, do more to, to keep even more secrets, rather. But that's what these media corporations are there to do. They love leaks when the CIA and Homeland Security tell them to leak. That's when they disseminate propaganda to the public. They did like they did during the Trump years when they leaked the transcript between Michael Flynn and Ambassador Kislak, the most serious kind of leaking crime. The Washington Post did that. Nobody looked for, the, for that leaker. Nobody cared. Everybody cheered because it served the interests of the security state. But when it comes to transparency that undermines the agenda of these agencies and that proves to the American people what the truth is, it's amazing that these journalists are on the side of the government and will actually hunt down the leaker and demand that he be punished even more. Now, Tucker asked him, he says, I don't understand how any journalist could collaborate in hiding the fact that we're in a direct hot war with Russia. Maybe you support that, maybe you don't. But how could you hide something that significant, the most significant fact of our generation, from the public? How could you do that? Glenn Greenwald says, well, the only answer is that you don't actually have a journalistic mindset. That you far more identify your job as working for the government than working for the American people. If you look at the history of the most important journalism stories, it's exactly insiders like Daniel Ellsberg who see that the government is try is lying to the American people about the war in Vietnam, saying we're winning, when in reality, privately, they're saying that we're losing. And he goes and he shows the American people the truth. Or Edward Snowden, who heard James Clapper falsely deny the NSA was spying on the American people. He had the evidence in his hand, and he risked his security to show the truth. Same thing WikiLeaks did. This is what you celebrate in journalism. Our journalists, meaning the media, corporations, are meaning the media, the corporations hate this because they actually work for their government. That is their true allegiance. Wow. <clears throat> this is one of the reasons why I consider Glenn Greenwald to be one of the most credible sources out there. And that doesn't mean, well, he's infallible. Anything he writes, it's, you know, absolutely, positively true. But he actually at least tries to be objective. He tries for transparency. And sometimes I bet you that transparency is, is not comfortable. It's inconvenient for him. But people who are willing to speak the truth, even when it's inconvenient to, you know, their putative side, I think are people that can generally be trusted. That sure doesn't sound like our media today. Sure doesn't sound like our national security state. And it certainly doesn't sound like the people in power. Choose your sources wisely. This is The Brian Hyde Show.